struggling a little bit to find the right title uh, for tonight's talk, but something like Seeking Essence, or The Essence of Being, or The Essential Nature of Being, something like that. Now, saying that kind of thing to some people uh, will sound very abstract sounding. What does that mean? It uh, sounds very abstract. Um, but actually, I mean, in a way it is, and in a way it's really not. And I'm certainly not interested in just talking at an abstract level about abstractions that have nothing to do with our lives. Certainly not about intellectual arguments about abstractions. <clears throat> Broadly speaking, oversimplifying, people could, could be divided into two camps, grossly oversimplifying, that um, we have a common sense, intuitive sense of the essence of ourselves and things. So I say Rob, uh, or you say myself, and it's intuitive, common sense notion. There's some essence of me here. There's some enduring, independent essence. And that's not even something that we really intellectualize at all. It's just it's a very common sense notion. It's not something abstract and intellectual for us. And similarly, when we look at our friend or someone else we don't like even, there's a sense of an essence there. And that's very intuitive and common sense. So there's an obvious sense of essence that almost is with the perception. It's, it's woven into the perception. And there's a kind of another group of human beings, which in this overlaps, of course, where there's more of a kind of intuition or sense of a hidden essence, uh, as if this that we perceive isn't quite the true reality of things, and there's something we need to kind of get to, something we need to see into, discover, open to. Uh, a hidden essence, a more hidden essence to self, to other, to the universe. And for that group, for, for people with that sense, that, again, not intellectual, Sometimes it is, but usually not. And oftentimes it's actually accompanied by a very deep religious kind of feeling. There's a real yearning to discover, a real yearning to know. A person feels very deeply, very deeply in their being, they're seeking after the truth, seeking after the truth, and feels that um, current of seeking deeply in their life. Again, not intellectual. So I actually want to begin... Uh, with a little historical and cultural context. So rewind the clocks about 2,500, 2,600 years, about a 300-year span of time, around the time of the Buddha, and a few thousand miles sort of that way, uh, and we arrive in India about the time of the Buddha, northern India, which was a very thriving and actually quite diverse culture. In that culture, there were a lot of people who were not interested in anything spiritually. They just got on with their business, they got on with their life, they got on with whatever. A lot of people like that. 
then perhaps the dominant religious paradigm was um, the Vedic sort of religion, and, and that was quite dominant. And there had been growing up there, from starting a few hundred years before the Buddha, the Upanishadic movement. So it, a sort of group of uh, basically meditators and hermits who sort of took themselves off into the forest and tried to discover the true nature of things. Out of that Upanishadic movement was actually a collection of movements. What was quite common within it as a sort of philosophy and belief was if you can find, if you can see, if you can realize, discover, if you can know your essence, capital E, yourself was what they more often called your, the Atman. If you can know the Atman self, and again it's given a capital S, your soul, knowing that, realizing that, seeing that will, will be liberation. Liberation from a sense of constriction. More often in that culture, liberation from a sense of death, or liberation from death and the cycle of death and rebirth. Actually, even the notion of death and rebirth wasn't a given in that culture. But for them, there was some sense of just being death being a, a real pressing, pressing question, overwhelming question. So when the Buddha left his palace to, go, to seek uh, the, the end of suffering, his question was, I want to get beyond death. I want to see through death. And the idea was, if you could know this self, if you could uncover, discover this self, capital S, Atman, you would be liberated from death, from the cycle of samsara. And there were different, actually, Upanishadic kind of philosophies and, and teachers and teachings. And so they had different ideas about the nature of that self that one was to discover or uncover. And for some it was um, more sort of here, some it was kind of in, an individual soul, for others it was more a cosmic self, a cosmic kind of oneness that we all kind of found the same thing. In a way, that period of time when the Buddha starved himself and denied his body, part of the theory behind it, part of the idea behind that was that the body and the bodily needs are kind of obscuring an opening or a seeing of this more uh, insubstantial self, Atman, soul. And part of, one part of the Buddha's incredible uh, incredibly original genius, incredibly original genius, was actually to be able to step right out of that zeitgeist, right out of that sort of cultural paradigm, and just kind of wipe the whole slate clean. It takes incredible power of genius and originality to be able to do that in, in one's culture. Step right out, start from zero, start from zero, wipe the whole thing clean, and say, what can I, as a human being, develop within me in terms of my consciousness, my heart, my seeing, my capacities, that I might understand? What do I know? I know there's suffering, and I have this sense, this intuitive sense that there's possible to be free of suffering. What can I develop so that I can understand that? Let's put aside this question of self and essence and everything. Just go right back and have as a paradigm instead what he came to call the Four Noble Truths, just what, what leads to suffering and what doesn't lead to suffering, what leads to freedom. Interestingly, he didn't wipe the slate clean and arrive back at 
a kind of nihilistic, there is no essence, there is no soul, there is no um, cosmic whatever. He, uh, there is no, it's just that we die and then that's it. Now that as a philosophy was actually quite alive and well in India at the time as well. People just, this is it, one life, uh, it ends in death, which is extinction, better enjoy it. Uh, have some fun while you can. Quite nihilistic, quite hedonistic. And that was quite alive and uh, presumably quite vibrant as a sort of movement. But he didn't go to that extreme either. And he stayed with this um, sense of just what do I know? Suffering and the sense that that can end. I can be free of that. And following his own seeing, his own capacity. Now those two the idea that there is an essence that we can discover, a self, a true self, a soul, etc., and the idea that there is actually nothing, and this is just it, and one dies and that's it, uh, and so you better enjoy it. Those are actually alive today, quite uh, healthy and alive in spiritual and non-spiritual circles. So the Buddha didn't go back to ignoring the effects of actions on suffering. He didn't go back to this kind of nihilism. He kept that very clear. Certain actions, ethically, interpersonally, within myself, lead to suffering. And that's undeniable. He kept that. Afterwards, after he was awakened, etc., he used to question people who were still in that paradigm of looking for a self, capital S, Atman, soul. And he used to say, well, out of all your experience, let's let's... Take your experience and take anything in your experience. Take anything you want that might be the self, that might be this thing you're looking for. Anything. And then say, is that permanent or impermanent? And they would have to say, well, it's impermanent. It changes. Clearly, because I've seen it change. Then he would ask them, if something changes, if something's impermanent, is that suffering or not suffering? Is it satisfactory or not satisfactory? Now, anything that changes can't bring lasting satisfaction. So the person will say, well, it's unsatisfactory. And then he would say, you're looking for this self, capital S, that's ultimately satisfactory, and yet all you can find in in the whole totality of your experience is something that changes, therefore isn't satisfactory. So how can you call what is not satisfactory the self? Is it appropriate to do that? And they would have to say no. Sometimes he would go through this with a person, they would get completely enlightened right then, which is very short and sweet and lovely. (laughs) But there was a certain uh, view that he was probing with a certain angle. Fast forward about 1800 or 1900 years, and much more this way, Western Europe, Florence, Uh, nice places (laughs) around the 14th century end of the middle ages beginning of the renaissance certain totally totally unquestioned mindsets and views and assumptions in the culture it's a slow I'm a terrible historian but uh, slowly or, gra- uh, or suddenly began to crumble and, and be replaced. So basically, unquestioning um, belief in God, w- w- uh, the culture moved from a very religious culture, an unquestioningly religious culture, to a much more secular culture. 
much more emphasis on secular ideals and pursuits and notions and seeing. Even, or as significant as that, the rise of the notion of the individual, the individual, wasn't really a very common notion before that in Western culture. Correspondingly, and perhaps to do with uh, the end of the sort of era of bubonic plague, etc., death wasn't such a total uh, force, uh, presence that was staring people in the face with, with a threat day and night or all the time. Death wasn't so prominent. All this huge, massive shift in the, in the cultural zeitgeist. But, and obviously with great benefits, but some drawbacks too. And one of the drawbacks we suffer from today, which is the over-rise of the individual and the prominence of me and then all the problems that brings. Me and the personality and my personality and am I okay and am I good enough? So nowadays in the West, there's actually a slightly different, I mean, it's not saying it's all one or all the other comparing these two cultures. There's a slightly different um, sort of set of, of assumptions and problems that we deal with. This self that we deal with today um, is more of the personality. The personality self is mostly the self that every day we, we struggle with. That's what we have the most dukkha with. Again, not everyone, and uh, don't want to paint a black and white picture here. And we know, it's not that we have a sense of a self being something that's um, perfect and radiant and, and beautiful. This self we feel as a personality is suffering. <coughs> we feel the contraction of it, we feel the pain of it, we feel the self-judgment of it, we feel the criticism of it, we worry what other people think. All that, uh, neurosis isn't the right word, but uh, that kind of thing. But we still are caught in identifying with it. And that shift that actually began in the, in the Renaissance period, the end of the Middle Ages, is actually the air we breathe nowadays. In fact, it's more of an individual culture and less of a, uh, sorry, more of a secular culture nowadays. So it's even more. It's the water we swim in and the air we breathe. And we bring this to practice and we bring this to our seeking and to our trying to be free of suffering. And so within that, uh, we can hear teachings, and there are a lot of teachings around different modern traditions. This personality is not your real self, but there is a higher self. There is a true self, again, given capital letters usually. And you can know that, and in knowing that, your life will be much better and freer and etc., and again, this is actually quite common. This is quite common in the, in the culture, either explicitly or implicitly. There is actually a tradition that's becoming very popular and even, even popular with a lot of experienced insight meditators right, right now, in, in these days. And the principal founder of this um, movement, this tradition teaching, calls this thing that we're after, the word he gives for it, is essence. And just a quote here, it can be mistaken for just another substance of the physical organism, such as the blood or the cerebrospinal fluid, for instance. But most commonly, it is mistaken for a feeling, an emotion, or a flow of sensations or energy. Now, 
any long-term meditator will recognize that sort of flow of sensations of energy as just some um, pleasant feelings that flow through the body because of the meditation is deepening. How easily want to slap something on it and call it something much more ultimate and much more, I'm not saying it's not significant, but much more significant. Or an even deeper state of meditation, one can be meditating and everything just begins to fall away and all that's left is this kind of sense of inner luminosity and stillness. And one feels like one's reached something. It's like, it's very simple. It's just this block of luminous stillness. This is my true self, my enduring self. It can be quite tempting to interpret things that way. In this meditation culture, insight meditation culture, we, have, we really push not to do that. So it's quite, we give a lot of um, instruction and teaching and encouragement not to do that. But it could be very tempting for someone, someone in a, in a different setting. Or again, you do a lot of metta and you feel like, my true essence is love. Maybe very beautiful, but is it true? There was a film, I don't know how many people saw it, The Golden Compass. Did anyone see that? Yeah, um, I've, I actually quite enjoyed it, but the, remember when people got zapped and they died and all this kind of sparkling dust stuff would be there. Uh, nice effect. Um, there's something very intuitive in human beings that wants to kind of, in some human beings, that wants to go towards that. It's like, this is, so now that you die, and that's what gets released, and it kind of dissolves into the ether of things, into the oneness of the other dust, etc. So we don't, in this particular insight meditation tradition, talk too much about meditation experiences, and em- or give too much emphasis to meditation experiences. But slight, even within the Buddhist tradition, if, you, if one did a lot of concentration practice, or a lot of loving-kindness practice certain experiences might emerge which it could be very tempting to take as my true nature or the true nature of reality. The problem, one of the problems with all of them is that they're all perceptions. They're all perceptions. They're all experiences that we perceive. And this has problems because a perception is always impermanent. That's not quite enough, because you might say, well, I've glimpsed my true self, or I've glimpsed, now I just have to get back to it, or at least I've seen it. But there's still another problem, and it has to do with, well, if that's what I'm perceiving, what about the perceiver? Where does that fit in? Someone gave me a book after uh, after a talk on, on self and not self, and it was uh, a book that I confessed to not reading, because <laughs> um, uh, I probably wouldn't have understood it. It was by uh, Hume, David Hume, the English philosopher from uh, 1740. Quote from, from there. For my part, when I enter more intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never catch myself at any time without a perception and never can observe anything but the perception. A few hundred years later, Bertrand Russell, I don't know where I got this from, but anyway, um, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher in the 20th century, uh, following on from this, he said, it does not follow that there is, there is no simple self. It only follows that we cannot know whether there is or not. 
and that the self, except as a bundle of perceptions, cannot enter into any part of our knowledge. So the Buddha also was very aware of this. He was very careful in his teaching not to define the self. So there's never anywhere in the Buddha's teaching where you find him defining the self. Never. He also, interestingly, didn't say the self exists, but he didn't also say the self doesn't exist. There's something incredibly subtle about the Buddha's angle on all this. Sometimes people imagine that, or hear some teaching, and imagine that uh, what's being suggested is to get rid of the self, to dissolve it, to nuke it, to destroy it, to whatever. And then, quite understandably, the question comes up, well, don't I need to have some self before I can get rid of it? Or this person there who seems to be really struggling, don't I need to have some self before I can get rid of it? Now, very few instances a person actually doesn't have a, a sort of um, unified sense of uh, unified sense of self. What's there instead is, um, or rather, that is there. In some cases, like schizophrenia, psychosis, etc., there isn't a unified sense of self. In most cases, where a person say, "I don't have a sense of self," what's actually there is quite an exaggerated sense of self, but it's very, very defined negatively, very, very tightly wrapped up, very, very built up. There's a lot of self, a lot of self-building going on, and it's all negative, a lot of negative self-view. So, a lot of the problem we have around self is around the personality self. And, you know... I'm a failure, or I'm an angry person, or or I'm always like this, or whatever. One of the things that mindfulness and retreat can do is actually that the sustained mindfulness shows gaps in that. Shows gaps in that. I cannot be angry all the time. I can't be a failure all the time. It's going to have gaps in it. And it starts puncturing this way we define ourselves around what we view about the personality. So seeing the gaps in things is really, really crucial. The Buddha, the way he would teach around this is less about there is a self or there isn't a self, as I said, and more about a training. A training to learn to see things as not me or not mine, not self. So it's actually a a slight shift. It's a mode of seeing that one practices. We have touched on it a little bit on this retreat, but not really a lot. But it's something that one can develop in practice, a way of regarding experience and phenomena, which is different than a view about the self. If I say, as a personality that I am an angry person. I'm also overlooking something else. I am this kind of person. I am that kind of person. I'm overlooking the fact that this angry speech, this angry behavior, this angry state of mind arises out of a lot of conditions coming together. A lot of things have to be there, inner and outer, for the anger to arise. 
It's not who I am. It's something that arises from conditions. This is something that we need to, again, practice seeing over and over and over again because the tendency will be to, to see in terms of self and defining the self. It's really, really important. If that angry speech came out, what were the conditions in the environment and inwardly, past and present, that, that brought that to fruition, that caused that to, to come together and then bloop, like that? Okay, so we could stop, we could stop there. Unfortunately, there's a, there's a quite deep human tendency to keep wanting to go back to a, a sense of essence. So it's possible to say, okay, and the Buddha talked about five aggregates that you could um, take as yourself. He talked about the body, the Vedana, which we talked about, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness. You say, okay, well there isn't a self, but what there really is is this flow of a, a kind of continuum of experience. And that's the, what the self is, it's a continuum. But you don't find the Buddha saying that either. And that also actually has some problems when we really go into inquiring into it. So a little bit on this retreat, we've touched on the notion to... I think all of us, at least a little bit. For instance, when we were talking about aversion, what happens, and people have been reporting this in interviews, what happens to this experience, this emotion, this pain, this whatever it is, when I am able to genuinely, genuinely relax the aversion? What happens to it? What happens, as John was saying, very lovely examples in his talk, when there's more metta? What happens to the perceptions, or to, to the nature of our experience? What happens when the self-sense dies down? Something correspondingly happens in the way we actually perceive things. Which is the real place, the, the real point from which we can view reality? How much aversion will reveal the real sort of elements of existence? You understand? There's, there's, um, I can have a lot of aversion, and then this pain in my knee is really built up. Really, I've got I'm struggling with it, and it's really looming large. L- less aversion, a little bit less, relaxing it. What happens to it? it just softens a little bit. Bit less. Bit less, bit less. What happens to it? What happens as the meta grows in the heart to the perception? Things begin getting much more fuzzy, much more open, much more, uh, much less defined, much less prominent. Where's the real point? Where's the point of reality? So sometimes it's really, really helpful to have a notion of. Uh, I really want to stress this, it's really helpful to have a notion of mindfulness and bare attention being something that we can kind of zero in, let go of a lot of stuff that we add to our experience and zero in on a kind of basic, raw nature of reality. That's a really, really 
uh, actually beautiful and helpful notion. But when we start going into it more, we realize actually you can't really find that basic reality. You can't find it. There is no flow of basic elements of experience that you can actually find. And when you really start going into it very deeply, you actually realize there isn't even a kind of independently existing time in which things flow in. Time itself begins to also just kind of fall apart as we really let go, really, really let go very deeply in meditation. It's the whole nature of defining the self as a flow, which sounds very nice, you know. Even that's quite questionable. So, it would be tempting to feel like we, maybe the self doesn't have an essence, but we live in a world of experiences and things and situations which have essence. But what I've just been saying is that that will, the way we see that will vary dependent on the mental factors. And we can't find a place that reveals the real way things are. We do that with other people too. So we say, he's like this, she's like that, that's how they are. And we don't see how much our mood, how much our feelings at the time, colors our sense of essence of the other person. Paradoxically, and John was touching on this in his talk, paradoxically, the less essence I have, the more presence of love and compassion there is. But even more so, the less essence others have, the, more lo- the deeper the love and compassion I can have for them. I partly say that just in case this is beginning to sound abstract and intellectual and it sounds like that this is leading somewhere dry uh, partly to say it really isn't so as human beings we have a very 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 deep rooted tendency to want to uh, see essence to want there to be an essence we have a deep extremely deep rooted tendency to perceive essence and to conceive of essence. Essence of self, essence of other selves, essence of things. And what we find is it creeps back into the Dharma. Over two and a half thousand years, it, it has crept back into the Dharma in different forms. The three principal ones, one is the notion of Buddha nature, One is the notion of awareness as essence, and one is the notion of being as essence. And I want to explore these um, a little bit. I'm actually going to cover quite a lot of ground and see what I can do. So it's hard for us as human beings to live on a kind of razor's edge of truth. It's actually quite difficult. There's a saying in the Tibetan tradition, to believe that things have a real independent existence this phrase goes to believe that things have a real independent existence is to be as stupid as cattle <laughs> not, not, very, not very flattering but to believe that nothing exists at all is even more stupid so clearly we can't say that nothing exists at all. That would be just ridiculous. It's totally flying in the face of our, you know, it's just silly to say that. 
So there's a razor's edge to walk here. But the thing about it is, that razor's edge, it might feel uncomfortable at first, but as we go deeper into it, it's actually very spacious, and uh, the real comfort, the real freedom is there. So Buddha nature as a concept, I can only just touch on this briefly, it's, it's come in and it, it, it's a concept that's used quite <coughs> differently by different teachers at different times, etc. <clears throat> Sometimes you hear the teaching that there is something inside you called Buddha nature that is permanent, eternally blissful and has an independent existence an inherent, independent, enduring existence. And you find those teachings in the Dharma which seem to totally contradict what the Buddha was saying. If you probe deeply enough, you also find the more thorough teachers um, of that notion of Buddha nature saying, we're only saying that to balance a tendency of people saying there's no essence at all. It's, it's a kind of nihilistic thing. There's a razor's edge here. So we hear this teaching of Buddha nature and, and oftentimes you hear it as your Buddha nature. Your Buddha nature. And oftentimes it's kind of put out as, some, as like, I know you feel really bad about yourself, but just think you have a nice Buddha nature inside. <laughs> and it's your Buddha nature. And you can know your Buddha nature. <laughs> now, that actually might be really helpful for some people at times, it might be a, a little sort of temporary raft. I, I don't want to uh, be totally derogatory about it, but it can only be temporary. Um, one has to believe in that and believe there's such a thing. And if you don't believe that there's something like this, you might as well say, well, you know, we all have Buddha natures. Well, we all have livers. You know, it's like, what good is that to me if I'm depressed? So there's an element of belief that's needed, but there's also an element of, I need to perceive this thing eventually. Go, go back again, just a step. Which self am I? Which, which self am I? As John was saying in his talk, the more works both ways, I think he pointed to both, causality working both ways, the more meta he did, the less self. Which self am I? When there's a lot of meta and I'm a little, very little self? Or when there's... A medium amount of metta, or when there's a lot of metta, which self am I? How much metta, or how much aversion, reveals the real self? So not just the real reality of objects that I perceive, but the real self. How much? Where There's a, there's a continuum there. Where on that continuum? Sort of exactly half? Where, where's that? Who's going to find that? Am I the self of oneness, which I can sometimes experience? John talking about this way of non feeling of non-separation. Am I the oneness self? Am I a self uh, that's vast and infinite, which one can also experience at times in, in very deep uh, meditation? Am I that? One can even go beyond that vast, infinite self in very deep meditation. Which one am I out of all that? The, the more sort of profound understanding of what Buddha nature means is the actual emptiness of self. The emptiness of self and the emptiness of the mind. And it's actually that sort of emptiness of essence. So something's very important here, and it has to do with going back to the Buddha's fundamental question of what is helpful and what is not helpful. And sometimes we actually lose sight of that question uh, nowadays. And I think it's really, really important not to lose sight of it. 
what is helpful and when is it helpful? So we can have all kinds of views and all kinds of beliefs and assumptions and ways of seeing, etc. Is it helpful and when is it helpful? Some people, and this is quite common nowadays and even in Dharma circles, some people actually have an, a sort of propensity inside themselves to want the answer to be a, an emotional or a cognitive inclination to want the answer to be there is no essence. And they want that also to imply that the, what the path involves is opening to this absence of essence in a way that opens one up to the existential terror of existence, that we're in a very, uns- which we are, it's in a very uncertain world of kind of things uh, dissolving in quicksand, etc. And that, being courageous enough to touch the terror of that, is somehow an end point in the path. Very, very careful here of our modern, our modern cultural zeitgeist, our modern cultural paradigm, which is actually extremely secular and a little bit nihilistic, or even a lot nihilistic, in the sense that life is quite meaningless. Uh, it, pretty much, there's extinction at death, etc. Um, all of that put together, there's a modern secular zeitgeist which actually influences us quite a lot, and we're in it. And we often assume that we don't see that we're seeing out of it. We don't see that we're seeing out of it. And we actually need to question it. We really need to question it because that's what we're in right now. The Buddha does not talk about the end of the path being some kind of openness to terror or or, or something like that, or openness to... it talks about the end of the path being freedom, being release, a release in freedom, a profound freedom. If you really listen to what he's saying, he's talking about an extremely profound sense of freedom, the mind, the heart, the consciousness being really released profoundly from even a sense of all this um, reality of perception and world and space and time and existence and non-existence, all these notions that we have about things. So there's something here, I think the point that I really want to make is something about truthfulness. Truthfulness and honesty. And am I pre-deciding a question like this? There is essence, there is a soul, or there isn't a soul. Am I pre-deciding that? Am I pre-inclining one way or another? There's something about a real integrity of truthfulness. Am I pre-deciding without either a real meditative depth or even a dedication to finding out for myself. The other thing that can happen, uh, and again, this is relatively common, is that a person reaches a certain point in their practice and then stops questioning all this, just stops questioning. And there are certain places where that are quite common to stop questioning. And one of them is around the second thing I pointed at. Uh, <laughs> 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 it sounds better if I say in Pali, the second Dhamma I pointed at, um, which actually just translates as thing. Anyway, um, awareness, awareness. So, <laughs> we can meditate and we meditate, and meditation is a lot about awareness. We go on about it, you know, 
probably you're sick of us going on about you know awareness and pay attention etc and can can sometimes feel like after a while awareness is sort of something that's always there two notions of awareness can kind of get solidified around as if they are the kind of essence of things I have to move through this quite quickly but one is that we begin to feel that awareness is like a kind of mirror and again, this could be very conscious, a deliberate thought, or kind of just an, an intuitive assumption we haven't really thought through. There's a kind of what awareness does is it's like a mirror to the world, and it the world gets reflected somehow in awareness. But there's real problems in a notion, and that mirror, uh, again, it can be a useful notion because we have a sense of something being really steady. So whatever's reflected in the mirror, well, the mirror doesn't care; it just doesn't care. So. Going back to this question, very helpful at times, very helpful. You get this sense of something really steady, really not caring what the experience is that's coming up, that's being reflected. Very skillful to use in meditation. Is it ultimately true? No, it can't be ultimately true. There's a couple of problems with it. One of the problems is what I alluded to earlier, that the notion of a mirror implies the sense of some objective representation of reality. So when we look in the mirror, yeah, that's, that's me, look, I can see everything there, and it's exactly what it looks like. But we've said that perception is shaped, the reality that we see is shaped and colored and built, etc., by the factors in the mind. There isn't such a thing as an objective reality in that way, or even an awareness that exists kind of independently of that, the way a mirror would stand independently. But the second, more common way, this is really as practice, it's really common with long-term meditators, quite long-term. And see, this is, I'm talking about views that are actually quite prevalent in, in our meditation culture. And this is quite a common, lovely experience that can open up in meditation uh, as one gives oneself to the practice over time, is that awareness begins to open out and become very vast and very spacious and very still and very beautiful. And it feels like everything is happening in that awareness. Everything, like sounds, just arising and disappearing and sights and body sensations and thoughts just arising out of that awareness, disappearing back into an awareness effortlessly, infinitely, vastly, peacefully holding it all unmoved, unfazed by anything in it. Beautiful experience, a lot of freedom in it, a lot of insight in it. And at that point uh, come, comes a lot of uh, naming. Um, a lot of capital letters goes on as well, in the sense of calling it uh, consciousness with a capital C, awareness with a capital A, uh, cosmic Consciousness, capital C, capital C. Uh, <laughs> big Mind, capital B, capital M. Mind, capital M. It's so striking and beautiful as a meditation experience. A person goes in and out of this and gets a sense of it more or less or something. And I don't want to play this up either, but just kind of to, to make a larger point here. Uh, ground of Being, which was actually a phrase that uh, theologian Paul Tillich uh, coined from a different tradition. It also seems to have a lot of parallels when, if you read modern physics, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, and quantum mechanics, it's, oh, not so much quantum, but that kind of field theory, etc. There's the notion of a kind of 
substrata of existence that's pervading the universe out of which everything arises and then disappears. And everything is of this one energy substance. And the actual meditative experience, beautiful meditative, freeing meditative experience can actually seem like that, look like that. And a person thinks, this is it. (laughs) This is it. All I have to do now is kind of get to know this and get to familiarize myself with letting go into that and really knowing it. But, uh, problems with this, problems with it. One is that it reifies, it solidifies and makes real space. There's a notion of awareness as a space and also time. As I mentioned earlier, just briefly, a lot of this stuff you could take a whole talk and talk. I'm moving through quite a lot very quickly, but... Uh, time begins to fall apart when we go really deep in meditation, really start letting go in meditation, letting go of the craving, letting go of the aversion. The actual nature of time itself as something uh, there that things last in begins to fall apart. Space too. And yet that vast awareness kind of keeps those, it reifies those. It's possible in meditation to go beyond that. And if you've gone beyond it, how can you go back and say, well, that, that was my final destination if I've already gone beyond it? The third Karmapa, who was, uh, I think, absolute ge- genius of a teacher uh, in, in Tibet, one of the early uh, Mahamudra teachers in Tibet, he says something funny. He says, we talk about the ultimate reality being uh, awareness, and we express what's beyond awareness with the word awareness, but we don't really mean awareness. What we, we use the word awareness, but we don't mean awareness when we say awareness. <laughs> uh, I question why you use the word, but anyway. Um, but that's actually really important. There, there's a lot of words that are around in a lot of spiritual traditions, um, a lot of the mystical traditions in the world, that use language in a way that's actually quite misleading. And some people are aware of it and some people are less aware of it. But that sense of a vast awareness out of which everything has arisen can also be interpreted as a source, this ground of being out of which everything arises. Uh, S-O-U-R-C-E, not S-A-U-C-E. Anyway. Uh, but again, a, a, an experience one can experience in deep meditation, one can go beyond it. And then the question, well, is that the ultimate reality? Very skillful, very, very helpful, extremely helpful, and can seem in that space that it is the source. Things are just popping out of that, like sounds pop out of the silence. If, you, if you've been using the, the listening meditation we've been talking about, they just pop out of the silence and they disappear back into it. It's as if the silence is the source of the sound. And actually, when one looks, things arise because of conditions. They can seem to arise out of nothing, they actually arise because of conditions and not from some kind of ground source. <clears throat> so, there's the notion of flow, there's the notion of Buddha nature, there's the notion of awareness. The last one is the notion of being, again, <coughs> capital B. And this is a very vaguely used term. So the question with this is, what does it actually mean? And what does it <coughs> mean when people say, as quite regularly do, I just want to be... I just want to be, or I'm just being. What does that actually mean? And what is this thing called being that we can somehow connect with or realize? And the implication there that there's a kind of essence in being. 
And you, you find, again, I don't know, I know very little about Western philosophy, but you find it in Western philosophy as well. It's a being as a notion in opposition to what? To doing? Being opposed to doing? Going back to what I said about the nature of perception, very briefly, I'm, I'm aware I skimmed through it quite quickly, but how do you know you be? How do you know you be? In other words, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. But actually, it's I experience, therefore I am. You, you know you be, you know you are, because you experience something. If you don't have an experience, you have no way of knowing that you be. Are. <laughs> In it. <laughs> um, so, a sense of being, a sense of being needs a perception. You can't have a sense of being without a perception. Perception is something built, fabricated. It actually takes some work, some doing to create a perception. I need to be... It's not a, we don't passively perceive. We build our experience by um, selectively attending and a little bit of craving, a little bit of aversion, a little bit... Put it all together, mix it up, and we've got this perception that we've built. Perception is a doing. To be is to see, and to see is to do. Now, one could be listening, and I'm, I, well, one could be listening to this and say, "Why, why quibble about all this? Why are you being so fussy, <laughs> so pedantic, so intellectual? And why are you harping on about this? Why are we harping on as teachers about this?" We're not talking, or I am not talking tonight, about intellectual theories. That, that's actually a really major point. Not talking about intellectual theories. As meditators, dedicated meditators, will go through certain experiences that will be interpreted in certain ways. And if there isn't a, a, um, a wholehearted questioning of that interpretation, if there isn't that integrity fully, then, then there's going to be a problem there. Now, more commonly, we interpret the problematic personality as self. As I was saying at the beginning of the talk, the problematic personality gets interpreted. Again, it's, a, it's an interpretation. We interpret that as me and the essence of me, intuitively. One of the gifts... So I wouldn't want to knock... I wouldn't want to knock deep meditation experiences and say they're irrelevant. I'm not saying that at all tonight. I'm really not saying that. One of the gifts of them is they really puncture our belief in the problematic, constricted personality self being me. And if they happen enough, they really start uprooting that as a tendency of belief and view. And if one throws away ex deep experiences too quickly, usually what happens is one just slides back to the default view of this problematic personality is me. Even without realizing it, one just goes back to that default view. <coughs> so why quibble about this? Why go on about it? It's because letting go of essence, letting go of a kind of seeking for it or constriction around it one way or another actually leads to freedom 
And the more we see through essence, the more we see it for what it is, the more freedom there is, and more and more, depending on how much we see and how deep that seeing is, until it gets to where it's actually an indescribable kind of freedom. It's really a freedom that's indescribable. So the Buddha has a... He said, that that person, that monk, that person, who sees no essence in existence, who sees no essence in being, like one seeking flowers in udumbara trees. Now, I think that's some certain kind of fig tree that has no flowers. Will give up notions of here and there. Give up notions of now and then. Like a snake shedding its skin and that skin withering into dust. One who sees no essence in existence, no essence in being. More succinctly, another time he said... For one who sees, for one who understands, there is no thing. There is nothing. There is no thing. At another time, he said, there there comes a point in understanding all this, in understanding how our perception of self, of other, of things, is is built, how it's dependently arising uh, through through mind factors, etc. There comes a point when one no longer asks questions about existence, past existence, future existence, or present existence, such as, am I? Do I exist? Or is it? Now, the it could be anything. It could be this em- emotion, this uh, Gaia house. You know, it could be anything, in or out. Is it? Does it exist? Or am I not? Do I not exist? Is it not? Does it not exist? You no longer ask, what is it? What is it? Or, what am I? Or, who am I? One no longer asks, who am I? One no longer asks, he goes on, why is it? Or, why am I? One no longer asks, this thing that it is, or this thing that I am, Where has it come from? Where will it go? Where have I come from? Where will it go? Part of the implications of that, part of the implications of that is that one loses one's attachment to conceiving in terms of the language, let's say, a soul or an essence, or the journey of my soul, or my purpose, or this thing in my life is happening for this purpose. It's God's will or or whatever. Or even uh, conceiving in terms of being one with everything or being a part of everything even. One just lost that, the grip of that attachment to that conceiving. So for the Buddha, there was this, as I said before, there was a radical shift in his view it sounds so small when we say it, but it's, it's completely radical. Moving from seeking essence to looking at actions, all kinds of actions, gross actions in the world, ethical actions, internal actions, and, and seeing out of all those actions, which ones lead to suffering and which ones lead to freedom. It's, it, when, when I say it like that, it sounds like, pff, right? Okay. Completely radical and completely brilliant. 
even more brilliant, even more of a radical genius, the views we have are actions. So to have a certain view or belief in the mind is an action. To have a view of I am a failure <coughs> colors, shapes, builds experience extraordinary to an extraordinary extent. To have an, uh, a view operating in the mind of it is like this or this situation is terrible or it is X or whatever or even it is actually as a subtle view this is, this exists that also that view is an action which actually leads to suffering. So the Buddha's path is about looking at what actions build suffering, what actions build suffering, and also how it is that our experience itself gets built by the subtle inner actions that we do. And learning to let go of that process, learning to let go and understand that process. And in so doing, we build less suffering. We build less of an edifice of suffering. And meditatively, just meditatively, we build less experience at times. And someone questioned at one point Sariputra, who was the one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and he was said to be foremost in wisdom. And he said to Sariputra, so if you follow this process to the end, and you just stop building, and you just stop building, and everything just starts crumbling of this edifice of suffering, and meditatively, the edifice of experience, and that just starts crumbling, is there anything left after that? Could you say there's anything left? And he said, don't say that, my friend. And then he said to the uh, questioner said, okay, well, can you say there's nothing left? And he said, don't say that, my friend. And he said, well, can you say there's both something left and not something left? He said, don't say that, my friend. <laughs> and he said, well, can you say there's not not something left and both not something, you know, whatever the fourth <laughs> bit of the tetralemma would be. And he said, don't say that, my friend. There's something totally beyond, <laughs> that's totally beyond, the Buddha put it, very beautifully, where all phenomena cease, where all phenomena cease, all manner of speaking ceases. All, all ways of using language and talking and conceiving cease. Where all phenomena cease, all manner of speaking ceases. Now, all that could sound quite destructive and maybe nihilistic, but the curious thing is, and actually the beautiful thing is, I feel very strongly, that... As we let go, the more we let go in this practice and the less we build, in a way, the more of this mysterious, not for everyone, but the more of this mysterious kind of, it's like there's a bow. There's something in the being is bowing. And it's not, as it gets more, as you're building less, it gets less and less clear exactly what one is bowing to. There's a devotional sense, beautiful. Something is just touched at such a deep level, but it's not, you can't put your finger on what it is. Something more and more subtle, more and more refined, less and less built up, less and less fabricated. So there's a real sense of beauty in it, of un- unfolding, unbinding, and, and a devotional sense in that, a beautiful sense.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.